I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Chamber Breakers, presented by Verizon Business and Yahoo Finance. I'm Liana Brindid, a director at Yahoo. And I'm Xavier White, CSR and Innovation Marketing Manager at Verizon Business. During this series, Liana and I will be inviting thought leaders to break the echo chambers surrounding key societal issues. For the third season, we're unpacking capitalism, whether it's broken and what we can do as businesses to pave a more equitable future for all. We're delighted to welcome Sarah Kaplan, a distinguished professor and director of the Institute for Gender and the Economy at the University of Toronto's Rotman School of Management. Sarah is also the author of numerous books and papers, including the business bestseller, Creative Destruction, which addresses the challenges of innovation and organizational change in our society, as well as a paper on the rise of gender capitalism. Her current work focuses on applying an innovation lens to understanding the challenges for achieving gender equality and other social goods. She is a champion for race, gender and LGBTQ plus fairness in the workplace. Hey, Sarah, welcome. Great to have you here. Oh, I'm so thrilled to be here and excited to break some chambers. Fantastic. We're, we're delighted. And to kick this off, we just wanted to ask, you know, we're here talking about gender capitalism, what that means for both employees, employers. Could you explain what gender capitalism is? Yes, so gender capitalism is a term that I coined uh, because I wanted to point out that our current systems of capitalism actually are gendered, but we don't think of them that way. We think of capitalism as some sort of neutral concept, but in fact, it is gendered. Our, all the different ways that our economy function is gendered, and of course, we can think about this intersectionally, so it could also be related to race and other uh, you know, intersecting ways that people can be disadvantaged in our economy. So we can think about the flows of capital uh, being gendered. If you, you know, looking at, for example, venture capital, how almost none of the venture capital funding for startups goes to women or people of color, uh, despite many you know, supposed efforts on the parts of many to change that. We can think about gendered product and service design. We don't think of cars as being gendered, but they are. Women are much more likely to be injured in a car accident. 
uh, if they get in one because of the ways that the products are designed. Uh, policy can be gendered. So if you think about recovering from an economic crisis, if you build bridges and roads versus building public transportation, that's also very gendered. And so what we're trying to point out with the idea of gender capitalism is that our society is gendered and we need to you know, foreground that and understand the impacts of that. That's great, Sarah. I mean, one thing when we talk about gender diversity, and I know you gave a few examples there, but when it comes to the workplace, can you give some more examples of how gender diversity shows up and especially when it comes to gender capitalism? Because like you said, um, it's not just about representation and that gender diversity in a workplace. It's so much more than that. So can you give a few more, I suppose, tangible workplace examples of how that shows up? Well, for all the examples that I just gave, if you have an organization that is filled with people in the dominant class, meaning straight, white, cisgender men, and those are the people making the decisions, doing the hiring and designing the products and services, then you're going to have a problem in really reaching most of the marketplace. If you don't have a workforce and a leadership team that adequately represents society, then you're less likely to be able to represent them in the work that you do. That makes a lot of sense yeah and so i suppose the answer is what you've just said but in case there's something a bit more nuanced you want to share with us what led to you founding the institute for gender in the economy i think these insights that we're talking about now are what inspired me to found the institute it was in 2016 i'm an american immigrant to canada and now a naturalized canadian citizen as well but looking back across the border to the u.s in 2016 it was the presidential election and even before we knew the outcome the amount of misogyny being directed at Hillary Clinton made me realize it had been 30 years since I had graduated high school. And in 1986, everyone had promised me that the world was gonna be my oyster. And then it turned out 30 years later, almost nothing had changed. Um, the joke that I make is that in those 30 years, I was went from only being able to wear a skirt suit to work to being able to wear a skirt suit and a pantsuit, but that was about the only major breakthrough that, that, uh, that occurred. Um, and so I felt like we needed to have a different conversation about gender equality because something we'd been doing for the last 30 years hadn't worked. And I'm an innovation scholar by training. And so I said, what we really need is an innovation lens and we need to bring the rigorous scholarly research to this conversation because there's a lot we know in academia that's not getting out into the world in terms of new ways of doing business, new ways of organizing, new ways of managing your staff. And so I founded the Institute to be that link between what does the scholarly research say and what, how can we change that conversation amongst practitioners in the corporate world as well as amongst policymakers and things like that. I do love the way that you've picked up on the intersectionality about that and really pinpointing that while we've moved forward in some ways with the pants suit and skirt suit analogy, there's companies and society are still grappling with what intersectionality means in that. And um, especially when you, um, in your article, you wrote about two ways to stand up against racism and sexism at the workplace, you reference stepping aside and stepping in front when it comes to inclusive environments. So. First of all, I'd love you to expand on that a bit more, but also at the same time, do you see a real new radical way in which we approach just diversity? Because especially over the last few years, when we talk about gender diversity, we've been thinking of men, um, cis, cis white men and women. However, over the last few years, there also seems to be a huge and much needed focus 
on uh, women of color within that equation and not lumping the same as all women? So those are a lot of big questions that you've asked there. And uh, so let me uh, unpack it a, a little bit. First of all, I completely agree. Um, one of uh, that intersectionally, intersectionality is crucial for our analyses, really understanding the ways that people's multiple identities can either lead to disadvantages or advantages uh, in the workplace and in society. Um, and, you know, the research shows that you know, all of the, quote, diversity efforts that we've been making in the corporate world, whether it's in the U.S. or the U.K. or Canada or elsewhere, has really benefited straight white women and not very many other people. And so to, to, to think intersectionally is to say, look, it's not enough to get a whole bunch of, you know, blonde women up into the leadership of companies. We need to kind of uh, have a more diverse representation. And so I wrote this article on two ways to stand up against racism and sexism at work with a phenomenal scholar, Laura Morgan Roberts, who has been thinking about this for her entire career. And we talked about two things that supposed allies can do because everyone now wants to fancy themselves as an ally. Uh, and, you know, with the hashtags and the, and the selfies with the person they're mentoring and all that kind of stuff. Um, but what we concluded in analyzing kind of what some people call performative allyship, which is doing all of the motions but not actually making any change, is that people have to do two things, step aside and step in front. And, you know, our, our tagline for this idea is that if it doesn't cost you anything, then you're not really being an ally. That is, in the step aside, you have to give up an opportunity. Maybe you were invited to speak on a panel. You have to say, no, I actually think of this other person who would be better because we don't need a panel of all white people or we don't need a panel you know, of all men. So stepping aside and stepping aside for opportunities that you might actually want um, to create openings for other people who are equally qualified but have been overlooked. So that's the stepping aside is giving up some of the positions that you have achieved, you know, because of your own privilege and kind of ceding that to other people. So that's one. And then the stepping in front is also to, if, if there's going to be, you know, backlash or anything like that to promoting someone in, uh, who's uh, more representative of our diverse communities, uh, then you have to be the one to take the heat and not allow that person to be the one who gets victimized or experiences the backlash. So in both of those cases, you've done something that costs something to you. Even if you've referred someone for a job, you're putting your reputation on the line because you've made that referral. And basically what we're saying is if we're really going to get change, people have to, it can't just be an add-on or you sprinkle it on top of everything else and you feel good. You actually have to have skin in the game. You have to do something that costs you something in order to really make the shifts that we have been hoping for but haven't happened. And I think one of the reasons that the change hasn't happened as quickly is because people are unwilling to do anything that might cost something for, even if it's just their own time, it takes more time when you're doing a job search to find, you know, diverse candidates to make sure the pool that you're recruiting from is diverse. It takes more time because you have to search, you have to build new connections, you have to keep pushing your team. It may delay the process. That's a cost. And yet the cost is worth it if we're actually going to achieve the kind of representation that we want. So you, you briefly mentioned in there sort of like women on the board, and then you mentioned a lot of things that I guess appeal to, well, apply to people in sort of mid-senior level. But I noticed that a lot of your examples, you know, being invited to speak on a panel, etc., are things that tend to happen to those who are a little bit more senior in their career. So 
is it easier for top-level executives to make those sacrifices? And what can be done for the people that are at a slightly lower level in the business? What could they be doing? So I'm not sure it's easier for people in senior levels to make the sacrifices because they've gotten to these positions and there's they, they personally feel that there's so much to lose, which I disagree with. I think when you're in a senior position, you have all the power. You should be you know, spending that as aggressively as you can. Uh, however, it is true that you are in a decision-making position, so you have more access to the opportunities to do, take these actions. I, but I think it can really happen at all levels of organizations. I'm a big fan of the idea uh, that people can lead from any chair. That means from the most junior to the most senior. And when you're leading from the chair of a junior person, it could come in the form of asking questions. So for example, if you want to hire, if you're about to hire someone for the new team, you could say, what are we gonna do to make sure that that pool of people is as diverse as possible? You're not in charge of making the decision, but if you ask the question, your boss is probably going to be embarrassed to say we're not doing anything to make sure that the pool is as diverse as possible. So I think there's a lot that more junior people can do. I think also by banding together in coalitions and coming up with strategies and making asks to the leadership, you can also exert your power. So I don't think that people who are younger in the organization have to wait until they're senior to do anything because I think that's sort of the idea. Well, I can't do anything about it now. I'm too junior. When I'm the boss, I'll do it. But of course, when you get to be the boss, if you haven't been doing those actions all along, you're not going to be you know, prone to take those actions as a senior person. You have to start practicing those skills from day one in your job to make sure that you are demonstrating the skills that you're going to need to be a leader in the 21st century. I love that. I'm probably going to go full circle on this conversation, but like just tying a bow on this is that when it comes to junior people in the organization and making those changes, I think especially over the last year or two years, especially what with the rise in focus and rightly on uh, racial justice and all the issues that the pandemic has in affecting more marginalized communities. And, you know, it's at that point where the top executives and the most senior people in the organization need to move on from the performative allyship that you mentioned into something more actual. And I just wanted to unpack a little bit more what you're talking about, about the stepping aside and stepping in front, because I think this is one of the first time I've had these conversations where it's been more, you've been more explicit that yes, if you want to be a real ally, a real accomplice for change, you need to make a sacrifice because I think from, I mean, having conversation here, I think with some of the conversations that we've been having, there's been an inertia from some of those who haven't been natural allies that I don't want to give up my spot. I don't want to give anything up, but how can we make the room bigger? But in reality, there's limited headcount. There's limited ways to promote people. There's limited resource in order to fund things. So stepping aside seems the key thing. How have people received that notion? And is that something you want to add on to? Well, I think it's extremely difficult and I'm glad you raised it because that this message is very hard to hear. I don't think that there's any kind of straight cisgender white guy in leadership who's saying, I didn't work at all to get this position. I was just lazy and I got it just because of my privilege. Every single person in those senior roles has worked extremely hard 
their entire careers. And so they feel like I worked hard, I earned it. And if anyone else is going to be looked at for an opportunity that I feel like I've earned, then that's unfair. And I hear that even from my MBA students. Some of the male students feel like it's incredibly unfair that there's special recruiting activities for uh, black students or for women. Um, and the, the thing that I want to point out to people is that everyone is working that hard. It's just that your work actually pays off in getting the advancement and other people's work is not paying off. It takes a lot for people to realize their privilege and to realize that even though I've been working this hard, I'm still in a position and I have access to opportunities that other people don't. And so it is a mind shift to realize that, yes, you actually are going to have to step aside if you're going to create these opportunities. And one of the things we see, for example, even if we talk about board directors, um, we see some companies, in order to increase the number of women on the board or the in order to increase the number of women in a senior leadership team, they simply add more roles or add more women. So then you get a senior leadership team that's 20 people instead of 12 or a board that's bigger. And we know from research that actually those larger groups have a harder time making decisions because large groups just do have a harder time making decisions. And so you actually can get more conservative, less ideal business decisions because what you've done is try to just add women on top or add people of color on top or add people with disabilities or you know take, take whatever um, dimension people are thinking about. And that's what I say, the adding on top I think we've spent the last 30 years thinking that we could just sprinkle diversity on top of the existing system. And going back to your first question about gender capitalism, my whole point there is to say the existing system, can't you can't sprinkle something on it because everything about it is deeply structured in a gendered way. So we actually have to change the system. And who knows, maybe some of these men who've worked all their lives that hard will discover that maybe if they give up that, pan that opportunity to be on a panel or that opportunity to sit on that important committee, they'll actually have more personal time to maybe pursue a hobby like photography or hiking and that their lives are actually better. I think that one of the, 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 the other insight that I have about all of this is that these straight white men have, even if I've gotten to be able to wear a pantsuit and skirt suit, they still can only wear a pantsuit. <laughs> and those, we have done nothing to open up the possibilities for men and for masculinity in the workplace. And I think that's another thing that's holding us back is we haven't given men an opportunity to say, hey, I want to spend more time with my kids. Uh, maybe I don't have to be on that committee. Maybe people won't think of me as less committed if I just, you know, go home to take my kid to a baseball game or go home to make sure all the laundry is done in the house. So I, I feel like the stepping aside may have some wonderful unintended consequences of opening up the menu of possibilities for men who have been, you know, straitjacketed in a lot of ways into one specific understanding of their role and are seen as less manly if they aren't doing all of those things. And maybe the stepping aside would give them the chance to explore some of those other options as well. I love that you've just said that. I 100% in agreement with that. And I, I think masculinity can be so toxic and prescriptive sometimes. And sort of on that vein, actually, I wanted to slightly pivot the conversation because we've been talking about gender and we've been talking about, um, you know, man, woman, and then how, you know, you mentioned some of the, the men in your MBA classes, when there's a women's only initiative feel left out. 
But actually, there's a there's another minority to do with gender that could be left out of that, but actually be diverse, and that's trans people. I know that you recently conducted a study looking at employees' attitudes towards creating an inclusive work environment for trans employees. And I just wonder, could you share with us a little bit of your findings around um, trans inclusivity? And is that then a good litmus test? If a company is trans inclusive, is it more diverse in terms of gender all round? Or is that just a sprinkling again? <laughs> Yeah, that's a great question. So we did, uh, through the Institute for Gender and the Economy and in partnership with Pride at Work Canada, we did a survey of uh, corporate Canada. So this is Canadian-based, but I can tell you from looking in the U.S., uh, there's very little difference there and maybe uh, in the U.K. as well, that companies are just starting in terms of thinking about how they could be more inclusive uh, of transgender or gender non-binary people, if we could open up even that definition. Um some companies are starting to post their pronouns or make it possible to not have to indicate male or female or woman or man on forms, making other genders uh, a, a possible way of recording uh, who you are, uh, of creating uh, healthcare policies that give people leave when they need to, if they are choosing to do any kind of surgery or other health-related issues to uh, conform with their gender, that they have the resources to do that. Um, to help people with transitions if people are already working at a company and um, want to transition to their gender, um, helping with that process. So most companies are not doing this. A few are, but it is really just at the starting points. And there's a lot that can be learned. Um, if people want to learn more, uh, we have the report on our website, um, uh, uh, the www.gendereconomy.org, and you can look it up. Uh, so in answer to your second question about is this some kind of litmus test, I would say yes and no in the sense that I don't want to lump transgender and gender non-binary people into some category that means that their specific issues are not included. One of the things we learned in our survey is that most companies lump it under the LGBTQ umbrella, but the issues for lesbian, gay, and bisexual people are completely different than the issues for transgender people, and often those don't get represented. You have an employee resource group that's LGBTQ, and it's run by a whole bunch of gay men. Like, that's not going to represent everybody. So you need to have specific initiatives that address the needs of your transgender and non-binary employees. However, just doing that will not somehow fix everything else in the company. And one of the things that I've observed is that when, a, you know, the corporate world has now kind of gotten interested in transgender inclusion and therefore they're suddenly not interested in women's issues anymore because that's old hat. You know, we that was before. Now the hot issue is transgender. And then you go backwards on some of the inclusion issues that just have to do with the gendered nature of our society and the, and the devaluation of anything that's feminine. So it is a litmus test in that if you're a company that's actually really thinking hard about transgender inclusion, you probably are building muscles around you, which you can think about other kinds of inclusion. But you are not, it's not a substitute for doing the work around race. It's not a substitute for doing the work around uh, women. Uh, it's, these all have to be done in, uh, in together uh, as a, synergistically. Uh, and, you know, also, as we said before, intersectionally, because of course, trans women of color are often the people who are the most discriminated against in our society and the most subject to violence and the most subject to uh, other uh, forms of inclusion. So I think we 
we need all of them, but we none is a substitute for the other. I definitely think there's so much to unpack here. And like you said, um, corporations especially are still getting to grips with understanding each marginalized community's issues. And like you said, still trying to get to grips with how with it for the trans community, for example, can't be lumped into LGBTQ plus for the very reasons why you just said. But the, the other even deeper because you know, on this podcast, not only are we trying to <laughs> go into like why capitalism's broken, we're really going to go deep on gender as well. And within that, um, you picked up before about masculinity and femininity. And I still think that um, when it comes to the workplace and those dynamics of what masculinity and femininity shows up and the expectations, I'd love you to talk a little bit more about how, again, boiling it down in a more accessible way to people who are probably still going to drips, um, drips, grips with uh, gender politics, um, as well as how it shows up. What, why do you think, um, as well, just picking up from before, that when it comes to masculine and feminine dynamics in the workplace, um, one, how does that show up? How does it also show up in the sense of that gendered capitalism that we're talking about? And is that something that needs to be understood in order to define and take real actionable steps to a more inclusive workplace? Your questions all pack such a punch. Um... So this is great. So I, I would say, let's think about the gendered workplace. One of my colleagues, uh, some research that we funded uh, at the Institute, looked at the allocation of capital inside a company and found that CEOs who grew up in gender unequal environments, meaning they went to an all boys high school or their mom didn't work or in the uh, county in which they lived, there was a very high proportion of women who were uh, homemakers uh, are not staying home and not working anything to do with their childhood background they found that those ceos were much more likely to allocate uh, resources inside the firm uh, disproportionately to men and not to women so if you have a whole bunch of division managers the women division managers were getting much less capital now think about that this ceo has grown up in this gender equal unequal environment now capital is being allocated less to the women division managers. The women division managers have less capital, which means they're less able to grow their division, uh, you know, get the results that you want. Then you start thinking about who's up for the next promotion and you look around and you see, oh, well, this man over here has had the best growth and has driven his division the best. He's really should be, you know, comparing records. He should be the one who's promoted. She didn't do as much. Well, why didn't she do as much? She didn't have as much capital. So that's an example of how the inequality in an organization can lead to very tangible differences. And then when you look at the resumes of the man and the woman, she does look worse. So then, then you know, people say, well, we don't want to just promote her. We would be compromising quality, you know, which is the argument that many people make. Oh, we can't just promote women or people of color because we want the best. That's the excuse people make. Uh, and but you you generated a system by which men are going to be the best because you didn't give women the chance to actually be the best because you didn't give them the capital to build their businesses. So this is a, an example of the ways that inside an organization through capital allocation, you can actually create a situation where you no longer have any 
quote, qualified women candidates because you haven't given them the chance to to grow. So that would be um, one example that I, I think would play into the kinds of questions you're asking. I don't know if that was the direction you wanted me to go. No, that's fantastic. I mean, there's so many different things that we can talk about on this. And especially, um, I think that's one key area. And I know that we definitely were going to ask, and this really plays into it, I think you've just shown how that gendered capitalism can also the the long-term effects and how it impacts a person's earnings because in order for them to progress up the ladder <laughs> it's obviously the more you progress up the ladder the more you well should be earning and if you can't get past that certain point then of course there's always going to be that gender pay gap do you think that's a core sticking point as to why there's this issue with the and i'm doing air quotes people pipeline um because because of that Right. Well, there's a million drivers of the, quote, pipeline problem. And everyone says, well, just women don't ask or they don't get, you know, they don't want to be in these senior leadership roles. And, you know, my response to that is, first of all, there's, you know, we've done some research ourselves that has shown that, in fact, if you create an opt out versus opt in promotion system where everyone at a certain level is 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 considered unless they opt out of being considered for a role as opposed to having to apply for a promotion. We show, we show you, you can completely get rid of the gender difference in who gets promoted and who applies for promotion if you just change the system by which you do it. So this idea that somehow women aren't there is just wrong. It's just a system that is designed to make women feel that they're inadequate. And so they think that they shouldn't put their hat in the ring unless they're 110 percent because the system has, you know, over time demonstrated to them that they haven't, as I said before, been able to get the right amount of capital and things like that. So I think that's one um, aspect of the of the pipeline problem is that it's not a it's not a problem. (laughs) People say it's a problem, but actually they're they're generating People say they have a pipeline problem because they have themselves created the pipeline problem uh, in the organization. When it comes to earnings, it's absolutely true that we have had over the last 20 years a pretty persistent 88% wage gap, depending upon how you measure, uh, between men and women. And most of that is being driven by um, women being forced out of promotable career paths because of their responsibilities at home because women are still expected to do more of the care work at home when they have children, uh, they then have, you know, can't necessarily do that 80 hour a week kind of job. So they then quote, choose to go into another role that's maybe less demanding, but less promotable. Now people will say that's a choice, but I would say the whole system structured that so that women had to choose that. If there were more fair sharing of care work at home, And if jobs were more flexible or more accommodating of the fact that people have lives outside of work, then we, these quote choices wouldn't have to be made. And what that means is you know, for example, in the UK, they now have paid transparency legislation where companies have to file. And what we've seen, for example, in the banking sector is 30 to 60% pay gaps. And almost all of that is being driven by the fact that there's no senior women. It doesn't have to do with people in the same role being paid differently, although that does occur. The most important driver of that is women not being promoted up into the ranks and therefore not having access to the highest paying jobs. They're in non-promotable or or inside jobs that don't get paid as much. And that's the driver of the wage gap. So I, I think you're absolutely correct in connecting the pipeline, supposed pipeline issue to the wage gap issue. So you mentioned the opt-in thing, and um, 
you know, there are lots of different ways that you can try and even out a gender inclusive environment. One that I like to tell my friends is I once read that if there's a job description of 10 bullet points, a man will apply if he meets five or six, he'll just go, eh, yeah. Whereas a woman will feel the need to meet eight, nine or 10 before she applies. So I always tell my female friends, if a mediocre man will apply to it, you should too. Right. And that's, that's one thing that I always try and say. And I, I definitely, I even see it. My younger friends who are just sort of leaving uni through to my older friends, I see that happen. But while we're talking about the sort of different things that organizations can do, could you share with us a few bits of best practice that maybe listeners can take away if they're working in organizations where they can make a change regarding creating a gender inclusive environment? Well, I think that the example that you just gave of telling women to apply, even if they only meet five of the bullet points, is an interesting one because I think that's what people want to do is tell women, you should just go for it and you should ask, you know, ask for the right pay and you should ask for the promotion. But what that neglects is the fact that the system, you know, when that lean in book came out many years ago, um, I was sort of offended by it because it totally ignored the fact that when women lean in, the system is designed to push them back. And so it's not enough to tell women or fix the women. The solutions cannot be individualized. It can't be about fixing the women or fixing the people of color, giving people, you know, all the things that happened to me in the 90s. I got all this training about how to be more corporate and how to fix my, you know, style and, you know, all these things that were incredibly demotivating and uh, othering and just really terrible. The fixing the individual, and even if it's not fixing the women or the people of color, fixing the leaders, just change your mind, just, you know, do anti-bias training or do, you know, learn about implicit bias and you'll be fixed. The fixing the individual solutions don't work. They just don't. We've, we've now had too many years of evidence that say they basically don't work. What does work is fixing the system, which goes back to this idea of if you are in charge of promotions, then you should change the system to be an opt-out versus an opt-in so that everyone gets considered, right? That is a solution that we've seen in companies and that we've seen it's work. it works. Also, speaking of job ads, we have seen that if you change the language in a job ad, you can actually attract a very uh, different group of people. Um, I just read about a study today, it's a working paper uh, that looked at entrepreneurship and it basically said we're trying to track young people into entrepreneurship especially young people of color and what they found was by experimenting with different ways of presenting the entrepreneurial opportunities you could attract more diverse people into entrepreneurship and the one that had the biggest impact was that advertisement that focused on women of color and the opportunity for women of color and that drove increase for everyone so these things that we're doing to attract, quote, marginalized populations actually benefit everyone because it was describing entrepreneurship in a way that seemed more interesting, more accessible, more something that you would do for social good and not just to make money by having a big exit or whatever. So it's these changes that are systematic that are about your job ads, about your promotion processes, about your criteria. You know, we have something in the United States called the Rooney rule that was started in the NFL that said, if you, the national football league that, um, American football, not UK football, um, that if when you're hiring for a new coach that you had to have a diverse panel, you didn't have to hire a black coach, but you had to consider, uh, diverse, a uh, diverse panel before you hired and interview people seriously. And that led to, at least uh, for a while, a real increase in the number of black head coaches in football. So that Rooney rule, you could also apply in your organization, like just do not go through with a search 
unless you actually have a seriously diverse panel. And not just that token woman, because I've talked to many black women who say, oh yeah, I'm in another search again. It's requiring a ton of work on my part. And I know I'm just there to be the diverse candidate, but they're still not going to hire me. So research has shown if you have one diverse candidate in a pool, diverse by diverse candidate, I mean someone who's not straight, white, and male, um, you have one person who doesn't fit that profile, they, they statistically will not be hired. You have to have real representation of a number of people. And so those are some very practical things that companies could do that require going back to this stepping in front and stepping aside, require both of those skills. The stepping in front part is to, to be willing to cancel a job search if you haven't gotten a diverse enough panel. And that takes, you have to take the heat for that. That's something that you would have to do if you really wanted to make these changes. I absolutely love that. And there's so much more that we'll unpack with you. And pretty much, I think we could all speak about this for absolute hours. But before we do go, um, although you've given some really incredible and in a way radical for a lot of corporations probably um, listening in, actionable steps, what other ones can be taken or maybe um, some extra misconceptions that are kind of not red flags, but are more of warning signs that it may not be the best way to tackle diversity and inclusion. For example, just bridging a little bit what you said, everything tackling on the individual or putting the onus on the individual that it, something needs to be fixed. Some, there's been a lot of debate recently when it comes to training programs, for example, where it's like, let's get uh, more women or women of color into leadership positions. It means another round of training, another, another training, another program and another program to the point where it kind of feels like it's saying you need to be fixed rather than why aren't those opportunities still presenting themselves? So in a similar fashion, or if there's other ways, what other things should organizations look out for and where are the efforts better placed in order to make a change within that system for a more equitable future? So I would say just to key off your uh, point about training, that there is very mixed evidence in the scholarly research that training actually works. Um, whether it's training the individuals who are supposedly the, the people that you wanna help, that often just others them and makes them feel alienated. Um, so that's not that helpful. And training the people in the dominant, uh, you know, privileged positions about their implicit bias often leads to backlash. So we, we actually did a review of all of the literature on that and find that actually training is really shouldn't be the first lever that organizations pull and that it should be voluntary so that the only people so that people are not being forced to go, because if you're forced to do it, the backlash can be quite intense. Um, so that would be, you know, one kind of surprise that came from the literature, because, of course, we've all been doing training intensively for 30 years. And we should notice that nothing has changed and therefore maybe training doesn't work. But um, we keep trying to do the same thing over and over again. So, again, turning to things that do work, it really is about doing that, you know, making those more systemic changes. The other thing that I think, and it goes back to something that um, we talked about earlier in terms of what young people in organizations can do. Um, a lot of companies have employee resource groups, or they may call them something different, but basically where you get to network with, you know, the people of color or black people or uh, women or LGBTQ, as we talked about before. And often those end up being, just as I said, networking groups and can often become griping groups because all you're talking about is how the organization is not serving you well. I really encourage those employee resource groups for, first for people to join them and allies to join them too, and then to use them as 
ways of thinking of innovative new ways that you could organize or do things, using them as a way to make asks to the to the top of the organization. So, you know, I try to think of employee resource groups as 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 resources for co-creating solutions and leaders should think of employee resource groups as those resources. And I think that we could get a lot more out of the whole organization. I can't. Every company is different. People always ask me for what's a best practice. And I'm like, well, it depends on your company culture. And are you a multinational company or local? Are you just Canadian? Are you just U.S.? Uh, what industry are you in? Are you in, you know, mining or are you in retail? Uh, all of these things, it's going to be different for every company. And so what I would say, the best answer is to really engage with those in your organization and not just as putting an extra cost on them. I can tell you I've been asked to be on so many committees to fix the situation for women at various universities where I've been that you don't want to do it as a way to just double the workload for people who are already marginalized in an organization. But if you basically make it something that where you're co-creating and giving them resources to co-create solutions, I think that can be one of the most powerful ways to make change. Fantastic. Thank you for leaving us with that, that thought of how we can go about doing it and something practical that hopefully every company can listen to and follow. So if people want to learn a little bit more about you, where can they find you? So uh, you can learn about the Institute for Gender and the Economy at www.gendereconomy.org. And my website is HTTPS sarahkaplan.info so you can find more about me there fantastic Fantastic. snap and (laughs) of course as we always sign off if you enjoyed this podcast episode which i'm sure you uh have done um don't forget to like follow and subscribe and also check out yahoo finance for more articles and videos around the subject Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.